Hi, I'm Steve Coster, and welcome to the Hassle Talks podcast. We're really thrilled this episode to have Naomi Stead from Monash University and Bonnie Shaw from Place Intelligence to talk about mental health and well-being in the design profession. It's really good that we're having way more honest um, and regular conversations about this in the workplace than than probably used to happen historically. Um, and I suppose that's a silver lining of probably the pandemic and, and COVID and the very significant mental health impacts of that, which we can talk about in a moment. But these challenges were challenges before the pandemic as well. And, you know, it's been coming for a long time and people have been warning us that there's serious sort of mental health and well-being issues that we need to understand better and, and address and it's particularly so i think in in architecture and design naomi it's great to have you here you're you're an academic at, at monash university can you talk a little bit about your role there and the research that you've been doing yes so i'm professor of architecture at monash university um, I've been an academic in architecture for some 20 years, so have had a long time to observe these kinds of well-being issues, particularly in students, also in fellow academics, and also in the important subgroup of PhD students who we find are actually a pretty stressed group. I'm leading a major research project, an Australian Research Council linkage project, which is about the work-related well-being of architects and architecture students. And um, it's, a, it's a big project. It's national in scope. Uh, it, as I mentioned, it covers both education and practice cultures because we would say they are inextricably and importantly linked. Um, and I guess the purpose of the project is really to try and move on the conversation around work-related well-being and work cultures and professional identity in architecture because there's, it's so widespread, the perception that there are major, well, let's say, issues um, with work-related well-being in architecture. Many people believe that's the case. There's been a lot of discussion, professional media and commentary, um, but there hasn't been a lot of reliable data, empirical, reliable primary data to really tell us what's actually going on, let alone what we could do about it. So that's what our project endeavours to do. And we've just um, completed a, uh, an industry survey of practitioners broadly understood, not just registered architects, um, in Australia, which was completed by 2,300 people. So that's a lot for a long survey like this. Really good uptake. And I think what that tells us is not only it will be an important data set, but also this issue really is being taken very seriously by a large number of people in the profession. Yeah, here, here, totally agree. For me, when people ask, well, why are you so interested in mental health and well-being as it relates to architectural practice, it's because, you know, because I'm dealing with the same mental health and well-being challenges that so many people in the industry are dealing with and I'm dealing with, the, with those myself. Is that the same for you? Have you personally found the industry challenging in the past and has that led to your own interest in this area? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen, you know, bad things can happen, as we all know, like catastrophically bad things for some individuals. And we all know those stories and they're terrible, tragic stories and they shouldn't happen. Uh, but they do. So um, I've been aware of them peripherally um, throughout my career. I have mental well-being issues of my own, which are probably particular to academic contexts um, and the kinds of overwork, burnout, cynicism and uh, perfectionism that occur in academia as well. And But yes, I have lived experience. I know what it's like to be anxious and depressed yeah. and burnt out as well. And I've never been a practicing architect, I must say. I'm an academic um, from the mm -hmm. very beginning. 
so I, I'm while I'm very familiar with practice cultures, I'm also something of an outsider in that world, which I think is an um, advantage. It means that I can see it with um, the eyes of an outsider. I'm interested in the people in architecture. Obviously, I'm also interested in the things that architects produce. I have a kind of parallel life as an architecture critic. I'm the architecture critic for the Saturday paper. But I'm also interested in the people of architecture and the cultures of production. So how is it that the people and norms and social practices and work practices and identities um, of the people within the profession, how does that enable or, in fact, stymie in some ways, uh, the kind of good work that they're able to produce um, in the interests of the common good? I had an earlier project that um, I was also leading many years ago now, which was about gender equity in the architecture profession, also an ARC linkage project, also with many industry partners. Um, And that led to the formation of a research-based advocacy group called PALA. Um, And really, I I think I can say it sort of changed the conversation around gender equity in architecture in Australia, and increasingly it's also being recognised internationally. So I started, I mean, much as I hate to say I'm kind of working my way around the social issues in architecture, um, started off with gender equity and then started to really see that that was very closely related to wellbeing issues. The women, the reason why women are leaving the profession or some women leave, um, very closely related to wellbeing issues. And obviously many of the challenges that women are facing in the workplace are not gender specific. They're also faced by men. So the two projects are really closely integrated in my mind. I really hope that we can change the culture so fewer people are going through those experiences. I might take that opportunity then to also introduce Bonnie Shaw. Bonnie's with us. She's a co-founder of uh, Place Intelligence, um, but she's also recently trained herself or been through a process of training as a human potential coach um, to understand how to um, affect your own responses to stress and and situations to to be healthier. Bonnie, um, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into that. So I'm a trained landscape architect and urban designer. Um, and but pretty early in my career, I built a game with a bunch of friends and colleagues um, that was played online and in cities all around the world, and it was. Uh, the early 2000s, it was well before the iPhone and Instagram, uh, and it really touched a chord and it it led to a placement uh, as a guest researcher at the Sensible Cities Lab at MIT and worked in technology engagement and product design and development um, in the tech world for about 15 years. And then supporting organizations that were going through rapid disruption and change. And I thought I was really good at dealing with change. I thought I was, you know, I was really flexible and adaptive and knew all the tricks and um, and how to manage that stuff really well um, up until a few years ago when I got really unwell. Um, I ended up in hospital with what I thought was a heart attack uh, and spent uh, uh, about eight hours hooked up to a cardiogram and um, getting a whole bunch of tests on my heart to see what was going on. And after sitting in the dark for hours, kind of freaking out about what was going on and worrying about my family and and what was going to become of everything. Um, A doctor came in and told me that uh, it wasn't my heart, it was stress. And so I had this kind of incredible moment of really trying to understand sort of how my perception of myself as as being really uh, well-equipped to deal with um, the stress in my life had led me to this point of quite critical um, failure. And uh, my response, you know, I, I... um, I'm a co-founder and, and leader in a 
data analytics company. We use massive supercomputers to process huge data sets to deliver insights to the built environment profession, architects and designers around how people use cities over time. I'm I'm used to using data as leverage for better decisions. Um, and so I went deep on some research and, and really wanted to get to the bottom of kind of what stress was doing to my body and brain and had what had brought me to this point. And I found this incredible body of work that when when I made a connection between resilience, which I'm familiar with through resilient cities work, um, and the ability for a city to re- recover quickly from um, an acute shock or respond to long-term strain. And I, I found where that work had originally come from, which is a Hungarian endocrinologist that was operating in the 1930s and 40s, Hans Sale, who is actually the person that kind of coined, originally coined the word stress and stresses. And that work around resilience was actually originally referring to um, the human body and our ability as individuals to withstand uh, long-term strain and, and recover quickly from shock. I started exploring uh, a whole range of different modalities on how to train myself to get better equipped to deal with the realities of the career and, and the lifestyle that I'd chosen and then wanted to put some structure around uh, how I could then apply and share that with other people. There's a, a new skill set that people need to equip themselves with to be able to function um, in this world that we find ourselves in because the challenges that we're facing now with uh, with a climate emergency, with the COVID pandemic, with, with a whole range of issues, we need to be in the most effective state, physiological state that we can to be able to make good decisions in a time of really high stress. Naomi, in your work and the research so far, which I know is still in progress and is, is so important in our industry, you would have been thinking a lot about how mental health and well-being relates particularly to architects and designers. Are there specific attributes or characteristics of designers that you think make this occur in a, in a particular way um, as opposed to other professions or the or the broader population? So I think what's um, interesting about architecture is certain work practices that have emerged, so practices of overwork. I think many people believe that is a possible contributor to um, deleterious well-being effects, but we can see where that comes from, and it comes from a really good place, as in a well-motivated place, which is that people want to keep designing until they get to the best possible outcome. So what this can mean is that they, they're not stopping, they're just keeping on going beyond the point where it's no longer financially viable or uh, beyond the point where they're really pushing their own personal well-being. Um, but it's really important not to lose sight of the fact that the motivation for that is very good and is very often altruistic. So I think not just architects but designers of the built environment of all stripes are very often completely devoted to the best possible outcome for the largest possible audience and for the quality, they're ambitious for the work. They want the work to be as good as it can possibly be. And they're trying to they're trying to make the world a better place and they're more interested in that than their own personal fame and fortune, Naomi. That's what you're <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean some people are interested in fame and fortune, there's nothing wrong with that. But when some people are interested in fame and fortune and the good of the world, I think you can have a both and situation here, which is important. But yeah, the altruism thing, meaning you put others before yourself. 
that, you know, it's a great thing, but it can have effects. It's both a decline in productivity and, and well-being, but it also, when you're under long-term stress and strain, it actually, there's a there's kind of chemical reactions, physiological reactions um, and neurological reactions that happen um, in your body that actually shifts the way both your body and brain function and make you think in different ways. They make you make decisions differently. Um, you're much more likely to um, have a fixed mindset. Um, you've got decreased task flexibility. So you're uh, more likely to want to repeat the things that you've already always done um, and less likely to want to try new things. You're less collaborative, you're less empathetic, more aggressive. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of what we would probably start to call character traits that start to emerge when people's bodies and brains have been under long-term stress that are sort of shifting the way you might engage in a, a workplace and might engage with making decisions that actually make us much less effective. Well, I mean, it seems to me that one of the key things is that people leave, people simply leave. It, it gets to the point where they can't take it anymore um, for a variety of reasons. And then there is a loss of talent. And this happens throughout the you know pipeline, let's say, of career, people's career, throughout the career biography, as they say. Um, in my earlier work on gender equity, it was quite clear that a lot of women, you know, women were leaving at every stage, including just after graduation, uh, all the way through to senior levels. Um, so well, there's a brain drain and um, that, that's a problem because not only, as Bonnie is saying, not only do we need people, optim, you know, operating at their optimal, most creative, most effective, most lateral um, level we also need the most diverse teams and the you know the every brain that we possibly can uh, who has talent in this area in the room you know to face these coming challenges so um I'd say that that's the kind of macro level um, uh, challenge I should say that in our project our principal partner is the New South Wales Architects Registration Board and of course all the architects registration boards around the country their mandate is really about consumer protection they regulate architects with the mandate to protect the consumer. So um, their interest in questions of mental well-being is really that possibly, hopefully not, but possibly an architect who was not working optimally may in fact put lives at risk, their own life, but other lives as well. Um, so, and that's, you know, that's a completely different angle on the question that, um, you know, buildings can be dangerous. They really can. Um, so, you know, we really need... Um, happy creative workers um, to work in the most optimal way for everybody's safety and happiness. That constant exposure to threat that you're talking about, Bonnie, and the reaction that that generates in our bodies. We've got a particular circumstance at the moment with the pandemic and the ongoing lockdowns where you're getting you know, really extended periods of heightened threat response Naomi, are you seeing or are you hearing out in the industry talking about mental well-being issues in the design professions that that is really heightened at the moment? How are people experiencing that? Is it burnout like we used to get or is it different at the moment? Mm. I think it's it has a different flavour. It's also very clear that it's having very different effects according to the individual, different effects on different sizes of practice, kinds of practice, locations of practice. All the Western Australians are doing just great but feeling really guilty. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, you know, I was in a meeting the other day talking to a young woman working in Sydney and she said, I am just loving this. I am living my best life. It suits me perfectly. But there were other people in her same practice who were just really, really struggling, especially the leadership, I must say, who are exhausted. I think the leaders who were really good communicators came into their own during the, um, the certainly the early stages of the pandemic and then they they reached out again and again and again in every way possible and connected with their staff and brought them together virtually in a completely new way, in a very intentional way as well, things that previously wouldn't necessarily have been thought of, were thought of explicitly. And, you know, it had very, very positive effects and I think it will continue to have very positive effects, but everyone's exhausted now. Anecdotally, I hear that a lot of practices are extremely busy, but uh, one of the key sources of staff for them i.e people coming in from overseas is of course no longer available they're really busy they're really tired they don't have the ability to get extra staff they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and um so right now i would say it was a quite particular kind of challenge it's just that you know there was a lot of adrenaline in the early stages and um you know everyone was like the whites of the eyes were very visible it's not so much like that now. And I think people have been very reluctant to take holidays or take breaks because they haven't been able to travel anywhere or they haven't felt they can plan. I remember a leadership expert, it was actually from a military background to originally, talking about the delayed effect of stress, um, traumatic um, exposure manifesting as much as 18 months after the event, you know, that their studies in in that setting showed it was it was a whole year and a half later from some trauma that people suddenly fell in a hole because um, they held themselves together but they couldn't hold themselves together for more than 18 months i think we've got a bit of that going on too at the moment which is almost exactly on um 18 months from the beginning of the of the pandemic in in australia anyway and are there things that you are already seeing coming through in your conversations around the research that are pointing to you know obvious areas where we can improve relatively simple things maybe that might make a big difference um, are those themes starting to emerge already at a glance particularly at the qualitative um, open field questions in our survey what becomes really clear is that people are seeing it as a systemic structural issue and that it's not necessarily about the personal failings of individuals. I was very pleased to see that, I must say. It's not people saying, oh, it's my fault because I can't work those kinds of hours. They're saying, well, actually, this is untenable. A very large proportion of people said that they had changed jobs. Um, a large, very large proportion of people had had a career break. Um, you know, perhaps those things aren't surprising. And if you're in a terrible job, well, you should move. You know, you really should move. Don't stay there and suffer. I was encouraged to see that people are understanding that it is the constraints on the architecture profession as a whole which are producing some of these downstream effects. So if the fees that have been charged for project are not adequate, it means that everyone's under pressure and has to work harder in less time, has less control over that workflow and the time in which it needs to be done. Um, more risk, more responsibility, more pressure, more of a high wire act. I mean, one of our early interviewees said that being an architect is sometimes like being the goalkeeper, you know, pretty high pressure. Mistakes are conspicuous. Um, and so structural issues around um, not only fee scales and con working conditions and adequate resourcing and HR management and financial management, workflow management, 
Um, but also the valuing of the profession, the design professions as a whole. I mean, if they're not valued financially or valued in a sense of, you know, we value good design, well, then we've really got a problem. So um, if the profession were more valued, and I must say I get tired of people saying that because it's like a refrain. Someone, we need a new Robin Boyd to stand up and value architecture in the public domain. Um, but it's actually also true. There are people doing that. There really are. It's not like there's no one. But um, somehow that message isn't quite cutting through yet. So my day job is bringing quantitative data-driven insights to bear on uh, design projects to support better decision-making at the front end of designs and um, the ability to run um, longitudinal impact studies on the uh, outcomes of, of great design in the public realm and being able to put some um, quantitative parameters around what great design does in a community. Um, and so for me, I guess it always comes back to being able to have some really solid evidence around the impact of the decisions that you're making, uh, whether that's around your own personal health and kind of assessing where you're at in a moment before you take action or, or don't act, um, or in the kind of impact that a design's having and the value that that can deliver uh, into a community. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I also think, though, just in the project management space, there's a lot of there's a lot we could do that would flow through from that through to the conditions for architectural work and production that would help. You know, um, I think the speed of things has gotten greater and greater. The expectation around the number of options has gotten greater and greater. Um, you know, the turnaround times and and um, a lack of understanding of what's what goes in behind in order to produce those those options the, the, the timelines are just getting pretty ridiculous uh, I often wonder whether it's related to the rise of the whole software industry and the tech industry deal with a lot of clients now I think who sort of um, bring these sort of methodologies or mythology from software design and think it can apply to d building buildings, you know. But the problem with a building is you can't you can't upload an upgrade to your beta test overnight if your beta test doesn't work very well because you've poured it in concrete and built it in steel, you know. So um, there's a bit of false attribution, I think, of, of some of these working methods and mindset it takes quite a lot of confidence and evidence, sure, to be able to push back and say, actually, it's better for us to be slower through this first part and spend the time properly in order that we don't have issues down the line. And to make that case in the in the rough and tumble of big complex projects is extremely challenging and, and very high pressure in itself to make that case. And we've got to help our people, I think, as an industry um, have confidence to do that. And I, I think I've seen, like having spent a lot of time in, in the technology sector and working with built environment professionals, I'm, I'm seeing a, a flow between both industries in terms of ideas and thinking and approaches. And I think um, a lot of people working in technology these days are um, trying to learn and, and borrow approaches from um particularly from the design and architectural sector and thinking very considerately about the impacts of their work now and um, and really starting to 
take on some of the practices um, that are slower, that are more kind of ethically driven. Um, and while I, I genuinely do believe that the the work in the technology sector, particularly around kind of how projects are run in a, a, a slightly more agile way, um, can teach many different sectors um, a thing or two about how to approach sort of adaptive challenges. Um, there are historical reasons for why things are done the certain, done in certain ways in, in particular industries and um, it doesn't serve anyone well to kind of pick up and throw those out and just try to run things a whole lot faster and differently. There's There's got to be a combination learning from both. Yeah, although, Bonnie, I'm... I'm really interested in the times when you should jump the tracks. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, um, like for example, one of our um, research partners, industry partners in our research project is the Fulcrum Agency, which is, of course, a um, small to medium-sized practice based in Perth. Um, started off as Coda, was very successful, merged with Cox, unmerged with Cox. You know, so they've been through a lot. But, of course, now they call themselves the Fulcrum Agency and they have very deliberately said... We don't want to play that game anymore for well-being reasons and business reasons, business viability. And I've been so impressed by how they have strategically said these parts of architecture, as it was practised, we think are broken. We want to set them aside. We're going to call ourselves an agency. The word architecture will appear nowhere. We will charge as we should charge, as we must charge in order to do the work. And they have just been, it's just so fascinating to see that they've said that is broken. We are walking away from that. Um, and we are making, inventing a new way of doing things. I mean, it's obviously much yeah, harder for really large practices. For example, Hassel, also a partner on our research project. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, it's much harder, like there's an inertia there. And also, as you say, when you're working with government clients, it's, you, know, you can't just change the way you do things overnight. I think there's, it sounds like, and it makes sense, you know, there's systemic external things in the industry that are definitely contributing that we could identify and hone in on and, and seek to affect. Um, there's then things within the way we structure and organize our own practice, which equally we can identify and, and, and affect. And I think we try to do that. Bonnie, you know, you're talking about skills and capabilities as individuals within, within that environment. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those practical things are and, and the things you've learned about that help people manage stressful situations at a personal level? The first step is to really cultivate an awareness of what's actually going on by asking the right questions and get some real quantifiable data to try and understand why it's happening. And as an individual, use your body as a data collection tool. Consider how fast your heart's beating. How shallow is your breath? How animated are your gestures? You know, are you sweating? Are you feeling a bit uncomfortable? All of those things are really good data to try and get a read on where your physiology is at and then take a pause. And so once you've got your data, pause and assess and, and kind of dig into it and analyze it and think about what's, what's going on. And, and there's this amazing... Um, thing that happens in your body if you're feeling stressed if you're going through a stress response and you take a deep breath down into the bottom of your lungs and kind of 
really get down there. It actually short circuits the stress response. You can't sit in a stress state and take a deep breath at the same time. It's impossible. And so once you've got that and you've, you've done, a, done your assessment, um, then be intentional about your, um, your action that you take and choose how you respond. But it's about reclaiming your agency from your biology. And so your biology, when you're not aware of what's going on, there's a bunch of triggers and things that are happening that are forcing you to act in certain ways. Um, but if you can just get those kind of steps and take that pause and assess your data a bit better, then you can act with intention. And then the last thing, and this, you know, this is in every framework that, that we would ever use in our data analytics work, is try and monitor and learn from the results of that. So if you are able to then, as, as an individual, consciously go through that process and intentionally take action or, or choose not to act, what happens as a result of that? Notice the reactions that the people you're with have um, and how they respond to you and try and learn from that. So then, what about looking forward? At some point, hopefully, you know, we're coming out the other side of the acute impacts of this um, pandemic. And whilst it won't be the same as it was before, hopefully we'll get more bandwidth back to, to think about, you know, the work we do in the world. It seems to us that, at, at Hassel, I mean, that, that actually through this period, um, if anything, people have even further realised how important great places are, you know, that the value of good quality places for people to come together, whether it's their workplace or their university campus or the restaurants they go to with friends or the public spaces in their cities. From our point of view, we think, you know, the value of good design and good places is, is getting greater uh, as a result of this and over time. Do, do you see that? And and I guess how does that relate to the issues of mental health and well-being? Because we, we need people to be well enough to get after that opportunity, right? We, we need to be in a good enough state of mind and feeling healthy and well enough to, to, to capture that opportunity to make that impact on the world. Is that how you see things going forward? Certainly one of the things we've seen is... Uh, much greater understanding and literacy around the use of data and decision making. It, it's something that's becoming, if we still had dinner parties, dinner party conversation, people are, are used to hearing about footfall numbers in the city and um, the, the sort of interaction in the public realm as a daily metric for the health of our cities. I think there's, there's some real value in that. And particularly as we, you know, we, we respond to the pandemic and then turn our eyes towards the increasing challenges around um, the climate emergency and the, the skills that we're gonna need as a sector to come together to address some of those big challenges. There's a real shift in how people are thinking about approaching some of those really big problems and doing that in a way that makes conversations about people's own mental health much more public and acceptable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel quite optimistic because 
the conversation around mental health and well-being, particularly in architecture, but I think in the built environment professions more broadly, the conversation is maturing and the conversation is moving on. And I really hope we can get out of this kind of loop of, is there a problem? We think there's a problem. We don't really know if there's a problem. We don't have the evidence of the problem. You know, it's a loop. It has been a loop and we've been in that for a long time now. Um, but we can get out of that loop and say, okay, well, there's something going on and we can do something about it. Um, and the pandemic experience has proven that we can do something about it. We can, you know, look after um, our own people, all of, you know, at every level in every type of practice um, in a very intentional and deliberate kind of way. And also, I mean, the pandemic has been very difficult because people had trouble accessing professional help, but it's been very good because people tried to access professional help. You know, a so-called help-seeking culture, which I'm told by my colleagues who are, you know, proper psychologists and so forth, is really what we want. You know, no, there's no stigma in having a psychologist. I have a psychologist who I see very regularly and it's very beneficial. A help-seeking culture, which kind of moves beyond on from destigmatization. Of course, we want no stigmatization, but we want to go on from that, you know, be much more ambitious than that. And for example, leadership of organizations like the ACA, the Association of Consulting Architects, who've recently released the an Australian version of the Architects Mental Wellbeing Forum Toolkit, um, which is a really great resource. Organisations and individuals are really stepping up on this, including Hassel, and I see that as a real cause of optimism. And and also the recognition that oh, you can act, we can change how we work. You know, we changed how we work overnight, as you said, and I think we should take that internally, like we talked about before, internally within our organisations, but then also outwards as well you know and to be able to say to clients well why don't we do it this other way or to say to the industry well can we suggest a different approach to that because i think if we don't do it no one else is going to do it design professionals really are leaders on kind of values-based leadership in the construction sector i really think that's true so yeah Yeah. it's not going to be done by anyone if it's not done by us so we really have to step into that i think Well, Naomi, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining uh, the Hassle Talks podcast. It's been great to have you. Fascinating conversation. We could talk for days about this stuff if they let us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Hassle Talks. This episode was produced by Annie Skipetis, Prue Vincent and Michaela Sheehan. Subscribe and leave us a review or rate the podcast because that helps us get into the ears of more people and shares these fantastic insights that we gather from across our network of designers, researchers and strategists.